Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Tudor Alexander, and this is the Dance of Life podcast. We are on part six of the Once Saved, Always Saved series. Today, we're talking about a huge topic and probably the biggest topic of this entire series, the most controversial topic, um, probably going to be the longest one, so I may have to take a little break here and cut it or something, but pray that my voice will last. Um, today, we're talking about predestination of evil. So basically, the idea that up to now, we've talked about predestination, election, God is doing the work, you know, all those kinds of things. And we'll do a real recap of everything if you're just joining, because there were a lot of things we covered in the previous five parts, over five hours worth of content. And this topic is just, it just necessitates these kinds of discussions, longer discussions, because, you know, it's, I think it's interesting, but it's really the fundamental existence that we have, right? Are we free? Are we not free? Is, is, are things predestined? And and so what do we say about evil? That's really the ultimate question. That's why this is so controversial. That's why Calvinism, I don't, for me, again, I don't like, like calling it Calvinism. I don't believe everything Calvin believed, but that's the common word, Calvinism and Arminianism. And so that's why Calvinism is so controversial. That's why predestination is so controversial, because ultimately what it means, what it boils down to is does that mean that evil is predestined? And so this is what we're going to be talking about today. And I hope and I pray, Lord God in heaven, please bless this discussion that whoever listens to it, whoever watches it, that they may be edified. I pray that you you see the truth of God's word and we do so without emotion, without you know bias, without our human perspectives. If you tuned in last episode, we talked about free will. And we're going to review some of that today, but I hope that that was enlightening for you in the sense that this idea of libertarian free will is, it's, it's a fairy tale to put it lightly, honestly. I mean, it's, it's the more we progress as a society with science and not that you need science to, to believe in predestination, but science is certainly on the side of predestination. We covered a lot of things about how we really aren't as free as we think we are because free will says that we can make a choice free of influence and only God can do that. And so ultimately, you know, that leads us to the question of, well, if God is doing all the work, does that mean he's also predestined evil? And if so, what does that say about God? How do we wrestle with that? How do we reconcile that with knowing that he's morally perfect, uh, that he can do no wrong, you know? So ultimately this is a very big discussion. And like I said, this will probably be the longest one. So if you can't finish this, then put a pause in it and listen to it tomorrow or the next day, whenever you have some free time, because my goal with this episode is to give you ample, beyond ample evidence and detail on this topic, because it's such a controversial topic so that ultimately you can defend your beliefs uh, and also that you find a renewed sense of appreciation for God's sovereignty and also for the evil that happens in our life. You know, evil and dealing with evil and suffering, that's one of the you know, foundational aspects of Christianity, taking up your cross, right? And, and we have to remember that the cross of Christ was predestined, right? So he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so if that's the case, everything outward into reality from that should be based on that, right? And so the evil in our lives, just like the evil in Christ's life, was predestined. And no, that doesn't mean that God is evil. That doesn't question God's character whatsoever. 
And we'll explore all that. So I hope this will be edifying for you. If you can't finish it, take a pause, take a break and finish it. Hopefully I'll be able to finish what with my voice still kind of being injured and all. But last time we talked about predestination. So we talked about how God predestines everything, even casting lots. And that's, you know, things that they were like roll dice or whatever they would use at the time. But there were so many verses about where even casting lots was something that God was in charge of which from the from our perspective, our limited perspective, that was something that's random, that's left up to chance or luck or misfortune. But really, it was all part of God's plan. It was an insult to take salvation into your own hands. We saw that through David. We saw that through Saul, Moses. I mean, we, we saw that in so many different examples. You know, God has a purpose for all that he does. And, and evil is not we're going to repeat this point over and over, but evil is not exempt from that. And ultimately, a good example is Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery. We'll review this again, but you know his brothers, he recognized that his brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We also looked at election as a biblical teaching in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, you know, history is not our choices unfolding. Certainly our choices are part of history, but history is his story. It's God's choices. It's the father's choices for the son. It's the son's choices to obey the father. And we're participating in that. It's it's election. It's eternal security. It's a pre-written plan. We're unfolding God's glory and greatness through this plan. And we also talked about the assurance of salvation versus eternal security. Eternal security comes by default with predestination and with election and with the fact that God is doing the work, which is what all of this is about. You're eternally secure. Remember, the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness, reminds us that we're righteous. But there is such a thing as assurance of salvation, which is your own experience of that gift. And as Christians, you know, we have to make a habit of praying, of trying to help the poor because we want to. You should want to help the poor, of reading the Bible, you know, having fellowship with other believers, doing all these things that you know you have to do. And if you're truly saved, this goes back to the very first episode, if you're truly saved, you want to do those things. If you don't want to do those things, then you're not, you know, it's not my position to tell you if you're saved or not. That's something between you and God. But, you know, that's that's a red flag, right? If you don't want to read the Bible, if you don't care about praying, if you don't care about doing good things for the poor or, you know, just good things in general, if you don't care about working on sins and being free from them, then that's a red flag that maybe you aren't saved. And so people who are claiming to be saved, but, you know, have those red flags, well, no, they're not eternally secure because they're not saved. That's where the confusion comes in. But if you're saved, you're eternally secure. Why? Because God is doing the work and you can't sabotage God. Never. There's never been an example in history where anybody has sabotaged God. So let alone us with our limited free will, but we can create salvation or assurance of salvation by doing those things. And that's important. That's an important part of our practice. And again, where is the line? I don't know. Where's the line between the Holy Spirit sanctifying you and you you know, working on your Christian walk. I I don't know, but it's a mystery and it's a mystery on purpose. If it wasn't a mystery, can you imagine how life would be if it wasn't a mystery? Thank God that it is a mystery 
And who knows, you know, maybe it's a hundred percent, the spirit, hundred percent us somehow it's superimposed. I don't know. But the point is that it's certainly not that we have autonomous free will and we're choosing to be saved through faith, right? We're cho- we have somehow something in us that counteracts all that depravity and gives us faith, faith enough to persevere. That doesn't make any sense. And ultimately we talked about how Arminianism or this belief of free will being in charge of your salvation, both to create it, right? And to, to be saved, to take that first step towards God, which we can't, and to maintain it. Meaning, you know, you could lose your salvation. So if that's the case, then then the only consistent theology with Arminianism, with that position, is open theism. Open theism, as we talked about last episode, is is a different God. It's it's a limited God that doesn't know the future. But that's the only God that's consistent with Arminianism. Because if you have a sovereign God that knows everything and he predestines things and he knows exactly what he wants and he does it ahead of time, that's not consistent with free will. We don't have free will. So either you have to believe in free will and then accept that your free will implies that you believe in a limited God that is not sovereign completely. He doesn't know the future. And so he's just reacting to things in present time faster than everybody to use them for the good. And we're all kind of choosing our way through this this thing and he's sort of shepherding it, but you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future. That's not the God of the Bible. It doesn't work because there's prophecy. An open theist God does, is not God. It's not the God of the Bible. It's a false God. The Bible is full of prophecies, and that would be impossible if God was like the open theists believe. You wouldn't be able to have prophecy fulfilled on time because God is basically waiting for things to, to happen. And the, oh, let me use that for my prophecy. That doesn't work that way. God doesn't wait around for our free will to kick in for his various purposes. God predestines things. And I hope, again, you'll see this abundantly clear as we go on. But God predestines things. If he if he didn't predestine evil, okay, here here's the thing. If he didn't predestine evil, you got to analyze the cost of your beliefs. Because a lot of people think they they need to save God by saying, you know, it's impossible that he could predestine evil. You don't need to save God. God, as you'll see, takes takes ownership over everything that's in history. Okay, and ultimately that doesn't change his character. He's being transparent. So the cost of the belief is if you don't believe that God predestined evil, but he's kind of just working it for the good, then the question is, why is evil happening? That makes God look careless. Do you see how that works? If God didn't predestine it in his infinite wisdom for for a greater outcome, for a very specific outcome, then the evil that happens, not only is it not consistent with the Bible, and you'll see over and over again, but let's put that aside for the moment, just theologically speaking, philosophically speaking, because the Armenians love to use philosophy instead of the Bible. But theologically speaking, if God did not predestine evil, then the evil that's happening is not something he intended for it to happen. So evil is happening on God's watch that he didn't intend to happen. That makes him the most careless person in history. 
Do you see that? There's so many implications with Arminianism, and we'll cover more of them. But just to start off with the whole evil thing, people initially feel like, oh, that's terrible that God predestined evil. No, it's not. Evil has a very specific purpose in this limited time frame before the final judgment, and then there's eternity, right? So this is like a hair of history. It's meaningless, but it has a very big purpose, as we'll see. If, if evil hadn't have been predestined, th- there'd been a lot of problems with God's plan. It wouldn't have happened. So it's all needed. Now, we talked about, we talked about free will also, and it being a mystery, but the top three things that believing in a free will theology leads you to, there's three big errors. We mentioned this throughout the last couple episodes, especially the first one. The first one is you take glory away from God. If you're the originator of the the, the situation, if if it's your faith that brought you home, then that robs God of glory. And I don't care how you want to slice it with philosophy and, and you know, word gymnastics, it robs God of glory. It is to God's glory that he can redeem and irresistibly change even the most wicked of people. But if those wicked people had something in them that made that first step, at least part of the glory, and I would wager a big part, but let's say part of the glory goes to that person. It's inescapable. That train of thought is inescapable. And it's not true, but that's the problem. It robs glory from God. The second one is it's inconsistent. You have inconsistent theology. Remember, the Trinity, it's not just God, one person. It's three persons in one God. The Father chose to give give the elect to Christ, a kingdom to Christ, to his Son. It's all about the Father's choice. It's also all about the, the Son's choice to respond to that through his incarnation and for the joy that was set before him, right? Which was which was getting the kingdom and the people that would love him and that he could love, all to the glory of the Father. And the Holy Spirit, he was participating through and through with the Father's choice of the elect. He sealed them, he guaranteed them, he sanctified them. It's it's this interrelated, tripersonal situation, which works perfectly well with predestination. God chose who he was going to save. Christ died for those people. The Spirit sealed them. Done. Done deal. It is finished. But now, let's figure out what that would mean if if Christ died for everybody and for them to secure this sort of ability to choose, you know, to have faith, the prevenient grace, which uh, a lot of Armenians refer to, which is basically the idea that... So prevenient grace is, is this idea that grace before man's action, which prevenient grace really should mean irresistible grace, which is what Calvinists teach. But prevenient grace in the context of of this discussion is this sort of quasi-grace where it was enough to cancel our total depravity and give us the ability to choose. It's sort of like partial depravity now because Christ died. And we can all choose, but it's still up to your choice. So it's it gives you the ability to come to God, but it doesn't guarantee that you will, which is just, to me, philosophical gymnastics. I mean, it's just nonsense, because first and foremost, you're inconsistent. Again, remember, open theism, that's the God of the free willers. There's no, you can't have a sovereign God, especially the way the Bible describes him, and 
free will, libertarian free will. You don't have those two. We don't have the free will of God. Only God can choose outside of influence. We are completely influenced by countless things. But it's inconsistent. You have inconsistent theology, both in your view of God and the Trinity. If Christ died for everybody, which is not what the Bible teaches, even though there's some verses we'll look at, if he died for everybody, then that means you still have to reconcile the fact the Father chose some people. So does that mean that Christ said, no, I'm going to die for everybody. You've given, some, you've given people to me, but I'm going to die for everybody. Even the ones that I know omnisciently will reject me. And you know that they'll reject me, so I'm still going to die for them. Can you imagine how that's just so discordant and silly? Like that's basically the son disobeying the father in the Trinity. But that's what Arminianism leads to. That's what this whole free will idea leads to. It's inconsistent. And the last point is, again, point of error is a works-based theology. If you can lose your salvation, first off, you would. But if you can lose your salvation, then what does that mean? That means you have to work for your salvation. You see how that works? If you have free will, then that means you can choose the good. It's up to you. You got to do the work both to come to the Lord and to maintain your salvation. But let me point something out to you very, very important and interesting. All of the works-based counterfeit religions of Christianity, Mormonism, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them that teach works. And, you know, they dance around grace, but ultimately it's a, it's a works-based religion jumping through the rat wheel of sacraments and, you know, works and all these different things just so you can earn your way into heaven. Those are counterfeit gospels. And guess what? They're all Armenian. They're all based on the idea of free will that you need to choose. All the other pagan religions, they're all based on free will. The New Age personal growth movement, it's all based on you. You have the power to ascend, to grow, to, you know, do all these things. It's not God doing those things. It's you. That's the Garden of Eden lie, man. That is the as old as time. You don't need God. It's you that has the power of good and evil, that you can choose between good and evil, that you can choose what's best for your life. Do you see how it's all tied related? It's all completely related. So if you have free will, libertarian free will, and it's up to you, the onus is on you, that leads you into a workspace mentality. Now, a lot of Armenians who are... Bible literate, they're not going to admit that. But really, that's the implication. If you can lose your free will, or I'm sorry, if you can lose your salvation and you have to work to maintain it, then that's by default a works-based gospel. That's a works-based salvation. So do you see how it all works? It's all totally inconsistent with the Bible, and that's what it leads to. So we have to be careful with that. You know, in, in the last episode, we talked about things like we're wired for pleasure and pain. Heuristics. Those are mental programs that we use to, to take shortcuts and they don't always lead to the right situations. Um, unconscious decisions in the brain. Several seconds before we even make them. Studies I showed you. Uh, we didn't talk about this last time. I forgot to mention it. But there's this thing called the Helen Fisher personality test in psychology. Helen Fisher was a doctor and she came up with a lot of, you can look it up, a lot of interesting work on the four neurotransmitters and hormones that influence our behavior. 
and, and create certain personality types. There's testosterone, estrogen, serotonin, and dopamine. And I did some work back in my day when I was doing a lot of personal development coaching and stuff. And I related it to things like Tony Robbins's system, uh, you know, other personality things. And it's all the same stuff. Ultimately, what she was doing, though, was she attached a biochemical perspective, which my point is, we're all influenced by these things. How much testosterone you have is going to influence your personality. It's going to influence the choices you make, how much dopamine you have, how much serotonin. All these things influence your decisions. You cannot make a decision outside of influence. And yet that's what libertarian free will teaches us, right? And all those things that happen automatically, breathing, your immune system, your heart, your blood filtering through the kidneys, your cells making new cells, millions and millions of cells every day. All those things happen without you consciously doing anything. So when you take that all into consideration, the conclusion is that we do not have free will. We have an experience. We have a sense of individuality. We have, you know, choices that we do make. But where is the line? We don't know. It's a mystery. But the big error is reading into scripture with the idea of, you know, my free will, I'm a free autonomous being, and I read that into scripture. All those times where it seems like God is offering people a choice, and it's up to you, and gosh, I hope you make the right choice, choose life that you may live. You can read that through the lens of free will, or you can read it, read it rightly through the lens of God's perspective, which is predestination, that when he speaks, he's creating reality, that he sets precedence, that he shows things, that he doesn't say things in hopes that you make the right choice, but he's saying things to the elect and bringing them to life so they will choose life. It's a whole different way of thinking. And again, that's a big error we have to watch out for when we read scripture. We have to read it from God's perspective, even though we can't obviously be God or, or understand God's mind perfectly. We can understand the bigger picture and read it from that perspective. Because I don't, I don't believe that God would leave these things a total mystery. I think that God has revealed himself very clearly in the scriptures. And that's what we're going to go to today. We're going to look at how he ordains everything. We're going to look at how evil has a purpose. We're going to look at how evil is predestined. We're, we're going to look at how God is in charge of the evil that happens in many ways. We're going to look at the book of Job. We'll look at the book of Ezekiel, a lot of other books, but we'll do some studies on these two especially. We'll discuss reprobation, which is the idea of, it's kind of like the opposite of the elect, right? You have the elect. God chose some people to save through history. And then he passed over, just like Passover, <laughs> some other people that he didn't save. And those people are reprobate. And we'll talk on we'll touch on hell the idea of hell as well that's a whole other study but i'm going to touch on that a little bit cuz one of the controversial things is does god predestine people to hell so we'll talk about that and we'll look at some common objections to this whole whole shindig it's going to be a wild ride i hope it's going to be edifying for you i really do these kind of things are tough to wrestle with especially if if you don't study as much right if you're not studying the bible intimately but that's okay. You know, ultimately, I, I think, again, that God would not leave these things a mystery. He's very transparent. He's very transparent. We just have to be willing to drop our illusion and accept the truth and see why the truth is the way it is. Now, the first, I have a couple disclaimers. The first disclaimer is 
I don't believe in an immortal soul. Okay, I don't believe that this soul just leaves the body after life or death, goes to heaven, goes to hell. I don't believe in that. It's a whole other topic. It's a whole other talk that I will be uh, addressing. But there is a spirit realm. There are demons that impersonate people, ancestors, and they're very much interested in deceiving people. This idea of life after death, I believe in annihilationism, where the wicked are annihilated. They're destroyed. And on the, on the second resurrection, when Christ comes back and everybody's raised from the dead and the wicked are raised to basically judgment and thrown in a lake of fire, that's the second death. That's hell. Hell is the future event. It's not happening right now. There is no hell right now. Hell comes from Gehenna, which is Valley of Hinnom. And that was a type for the future lake of fire where Christ will throw the wicked, the people who are not elect, into that lake of fire, they're going to burn, they will die, and they will not be alive anymore. They'll cease to exist. They'll be annihilated. Now, why is that important? Because one of the biggest arguments against predestination is attacking God's character, that God wouldn't predestine people to hell, eternal torment. And I agree with you, yes, he wouldn't do that. But you see, this lie has been propagated through this whole idea of an elaborate afterlife of heaven and hell and souls and spiritism. This stuff is not biblical, guys. And again, I don't have time to, that's a whole study. That's going to be an afterlife series. I will get into that hopefully in a couple weeks. But just to suffice it to say that that's not what the Hebrews believed in. Hebrews actually believed in life, in resurrection, as old as the book of Job, and Job was supposedly around, probably around the time of Abraham, they believed in resurrection. The cultures around them who had been deceived by fallen angels believed in spiritism, in the soul being immortal outside the body. Why? Because the the fallen angels who became deities fooled these people into worship through this whole system, and it's still alive today. And I believe it's alive from the pit of hell because what it does is it it makes people question God's character and they don't bother to read the scriptures, so they just write it off. You see, they say that hell must exist, eternal torment, and therefore God predestines people to hell, so he must be, you know, his character must be questionable, so then I can't believe in God, right? So ultimately, or even even without predestination, even if God justly sends people to eternal torment, which again, I don't believe in eternal torment, but if that's the belief you were taught, it causes people to question God, causes their question their faith, atheism, deconstructioning, all those things. And that's why I think it's a lie from the pit of hell. I think it's intentional that the spiritual powers at B, at bay, uh, that B, I should say, uh, came up with this lie to make people doubt God. And the truth is that the soul doesn't live on after death. We are resurrected. That's our blessed hope. There's nothing on death, right? And so that's my disclaimer. So I don't I don't think you can believe in predestination and also eternal torment. Those two things are not consistent. So that's a big disclaimer. It's annihilationism goes hand in hand with predestination. And in that, if that's the case, then God is completely just destroying the wicked and, and never remembering them ever, not sustaining them. You know, he has to sustain everybody, whether they're wicked or not. 
He's not going to sustain people eternally in hell and, and torture them. That doesn't make any sense. It's not consistent with his pattern of judgment. Whoever disobeys and rebels dies. That's it. And that's what's going to happen at the end of the age. So one more other thing is election is unconditional. Election is unconditional. And we don't understand what that means because it is impossible for us to make unconditional choices. Every choice that we make is conditional upon something else. But God's choice to save you and me and the people he's chosen to save is unconditional. The same goes with the people he hasn't chosen to save. It's unconditional both ways. So you got to remember, predestination, being elect doesn't mean that you did anything special and God looked into the future and said, oh, that person, you know what? He's going to have faith or she's going to have faith, so I'm going to choose them. That's not how election works. That would make God conditional. That would make him the most biased person in history. Think about it. If he looked in the future and he said, you know what? Sally is going to have a ton of faith, so I'm going to choose her to be saved. Well, is it to his glory that he chose somebody that was going to have faith? No, it's to God's glory that he unconditionally chose people who were all destined for the fire anyway, and he transformed their wicked heart to show his glory. That's what's glorifying God. So you have to, again, what is the cost of what I believe? You have to think these things out. So unconditional election goes both ways. So the thing is, ultimately, be grateful that you are here, that God has revealed these things to you, that he's revealed the cross to you. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Most people out there think, you know, look at look at pop stars today. I mean, they're mocking Christ. They're wearing rhinestone-covered, you know, uh, crown of thorns. It's just, it's outrageous. They're parading as, as Christ. I mean, it is, they have no clue what awaits them. They have no clue. And for us that, that do see clearly, that have seen the cross and have seen Christ and have come to him and have become born again, that's something that wasn't under your control. So be grateful for it. Be in awe that God chose you unconditionally too. How does that work? I don't know. It's not even random because randomness is a condition of the physical world. So keep all that in mind. Be grateful it wasn't you as we go through this. You know, the first thing we'll talk about is reprobation. And that is the idea that some people aren't saved by predestination. They're just not saved. Some people are saved. Some people are reprobate. So I want to start with a couple things and review total depravity. And this was something we started in the first episode. But it's the idea that we are, by default, born in this world, depraved and unable to make any good choices that would lead us to a saving relationship with God. So if we go to Job, we start with the book of Job. And we'll get back to Job because Job is it's fascinating. Job is one of the oldest books of the Bible. And the character Job lived a very long time ago. So the book of Job shows us attitudes that were around for a long time. That's why it's very important. But Job 15, 14, what is man that he can be pure or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? You know, so the context is Job's, you know, basically got afflicted with all these things by Satan because God allowed it to test his faith and to reveal his glory. But his friends are rebuking him, you know, saying, you know, you're <laughs> you're probably wicked. That's why these things are happening to you. And, and so there's this whole 
long dialogue between him and his friends. And they're reflecting on the wickedness of man. Why is this important? Well, people thousands of years ago believed in total depravity. They believed that you were sinful from the day you were born, that you were not able to you know, come to God with saving faith. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who was born of a woman, that he can be righteous. Right? Psalm 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So, from the get-go. A little bit later, in Psalm 58, verse 10 through 11, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now, why is this important? Evil has a purpose to show God's justice. We're going to come back to this over and over again. If you didn't have evil that would be triumphed over, you would never understand justice. And justice is a core part of who God is. So these things show who God is. Let's go to the next one. Isaiah 48, verse 1. 1 through 8, actually. Israel refined for God's glory. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. They're taking the Lord's name in vain. For they call themselves after the holy city and they stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from old. Before they come to pass, I announce them to you, lest you should say, My idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you should, you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. So a lot going on in these verses. But God is talking about, first off, I predestined everything so that I would reveal my glory, so that you... So that the reprobate, the people who God had predestined to be idolaters so that he could punish and show his, his justice and reveal his truth to the elect. So that they wouldn't say, yeah, it was my idol that did it. Do you see how that works? He uses everything to show. And then at the end, you know, he talks about before birth, you were called a rebel. I knew that you would deal treacherously. So he knew that evil would happen. He predestined it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, that's the New Testament. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Natural person can't understand things from the Spirit. The Spirit has to intercede and intervene in your life for you to have a permanent change of awareness. Otherwise, an object in motion will stay in motion unless an external force acts upon it. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is a force, but just go with that example, right? Things will go as they 
continue to go unless something acts on them. That's the story of our life and, and sin and redemption and grace. Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. It cannot submit. The mind that is set on the flesh. That's all of our minds before we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It cannot. It's impossible. 1 John 3, verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil was predestined. We'll get back to this in a future episode, but the devil is the most beautiful creation God ever made. But you ever thought that maybe he made the most beautiful vessel so he could destroy it and prove his glory? That's a thought to think about on your next walk. Think about that. The God, the God predestined the devil from the very beginning to be the villain of the story. Why? Because the devil represents pride. Pride is the thing that inherently separates us from God as self-aware beings. So God had to create a villain that would exemplify the thing that we need to avoid. And the devil is the example of that. He's the pinnacle of pride. So it's all part of the plan. Devil was sinning from the beginning. God predestined the cross. God predestined the devil as the villain. And he predestined Christ's role. The father predestined Christ's role as the hero to save us from the dragon. It's a beautiful story. Now, again, we come back to this challenge of provenient grace, which is the Christ sacrifice leads to some sort of neutrality. It neutralizes total depravity or it gives us a partial depravity. Depravity, Like we have the ability to choose, but you know it's not a guarantee that you're going to make it to Christ. That's what prevenient grace means in the context of this conversation. But I want your attention to go to John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, pay attention now, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We talked about this verse in Eternal Security a couple episodes back, but that's pretty darn clear. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. Why? Because God is doing the work. God doesn't do flimsy work. And whoever comes to me, because they will, because they're predestined to, I will never cast out. Christ will not reject you. You're not going to lose your salvation. You have to work on assurance of salvation so you experience the gift that you've been given. But if you're saved, you're genuinely saved, you cannot lose your salvation. And prevenient grace teaches that, well, you have the ability to choose and, and have faith, but it's not a guarantee that people will come to Christ. Well, this says that all the Father gives me will come to me. That's a guarantee. Remember how the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance? I mean, I don't know what other words we could use. These are pretty pretty certain. Remember the inconsistency in the Trinity. If, if Christ died for everybody, then there's a lot of people going to hell that God wanted to save but couldn't. And he basically disobeyed the Father. So that makes no sense. There's, there's no biblical support for that. 
You can do biblical gymnastics with it, but there's no actual support if you study the Trinity. And that's why I did a whole episode on the Trinity. It contradicts election, which is a clear teaching in both the Old and the New Testament. It contradicts all the verses on eternal security. It contradicts all the verses on God doing the work. And we looked at hundreds, over a hundred verses in the last few episodes on all these topics alone. Look at Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Lamentations is one of the most depressing books of the Bible. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Romans 8, 31 through 39, classic. God's everlasting love. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, predestined, but gave him up for us all, not all, everybody in the world, but thus who are going to come to him, the elect, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There we go. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Christ is interceding for you. Do you think you can counteract that work? I don't think so. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, I mean, that's an Armenian's worst nightmare. Because if you think you can lose your salvation, there is no way to reconcile what I just read. I mean, again, you can do biblical gymnastics and say, you know, Christ will always love us, but we can turn away and and lose our salvation. But that's not, that doesn't work, man. If God loves you, it's not this sort of passive love. He's going to love on you and irresistibly change your soul and heart as he's done throughout history. There's nothing you can do Armenianism would say that Paul basically saw the vision and he had a choice to carry on being a murderer. That's what Armenianism claims, whether directly or indirectly. But the point is that would never be possible. If Christ appeared to you and intended for that to convert you and to change your heart and your soul, there's no way you could resist that. The love of God is irresistible when he shows it to you. He transforms you from the inside out, and that's it. It's finished. You're never going back. And that's that's really important to theology, because if you believe that you can lose your salvation, again, there's a lot of problems that come up with that. In your view of God, the Trinity, works, you know, inconsistencies in, in theology, and all kinds of stuff happen. So now, if, if Christ's atonement made partial depravity, let's just go with that, though. What about all the people before Christ? 
What about Adam? What about Moses? You see how it doesn't make sense? Like, how could they have chosen, how could they have had faith of their own selves? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, you know, say, oh, what kind of worked back in time? I mean, where is that in the Bible? There's no support for that. If God is responding to our faith in the future, right? He's looking down the corridor of time. He says, okay, Bobby's going to have faith. Sally's not going to have faith. You know, so on and so forth. He's going to pick those people out. That makes God the most conditional biased person in history. God's glory is not by responding to us. It's by renewing us from being dead. That's God's glory. Open theists, the God of open theism, cannot respond to the future because he doesn't know the future. If you have an omniscient God that is responding to the future and choosing people based on what he sees in the future, that is incredibly biased. And that's that doesn't work because that's not God's character. He That wouldn't be just. And it wouldn't maximize his glory. Again, all these things rob the glory away from God. When you really think them out, anything other than election, predestination, on both ends, it doesn't give God the glory. It either gives man the glory, or at the very least, it robs God of glory. So, let's take a look at how God ordains both good and evil in reality. Go to Exodus 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has, me- who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So who's doing all these things? It's me. That's what God says. Lamentations 3, verses 31 through 33. And we'll go a little bit later to 37 and 38. But 31 says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Right? He doesn't do it from his heart. He doesn't, we'll get back to this, but he doesn't enjoy having predestined the evil that's in the world. None of this is enjoyable for God. He hates it. But it's a necessary step towards his greater plan. Now, if we look at 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Keep all these in mind and you'll see these attitudes reflected in multiple scriptures. Good and bad come from the mouth of the Lord, both. Not that God is sinning, not that God is evil, not that God is bad, God is ordaining everything to happen because everything has a purpose. There's nothing that God created that is purposeless. Again, that's another argument too with open theists is that if God didn't ordain evil, think about this very carefully. If God didn't ordain evil, then the evil that does happen doesn't have an inherent purpose to it. It's meaningless. That's horrible. What does that say about God? Well, he's using it for the good. No, it doesn't matter that he's using it for the good. If evil is happening under his watch that inherently has no purpose, that makes God look clumsy and careless. 
But that's not the case. God is very transparent that everything that happens is meant to happen and came from God. One way or another. Because he's sovereign. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6. Let's look at this one. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. So this, now the next one, verse 7 actually. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. We can even go through 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So all of this, again, it's it's painting this duality that, look, there's misfortune, there's fortune, there's life, there's death. They're quoting Deuteronomy 32, 39, uh, which is, See now that I, even I, am he, and there's no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there's none that can deliver out of my hand. What is what is going on here? Like God is reminding you, listen, I am completely sovereign. You need to fear me. I'm the one who you need to fear. Fear not the one who can destroy body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, right? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, as the elect, you're not condemned, but that's still it's still important for you to realize that God is fearsome, even though you're elect. And so that's why evil has a purpose, to show the elect, the people who God isn't going to condemn and destroy, to show them by proxy who God is, that, that frightening side of God that's important to understand, as well as his loving and merciful side. Because guess what? Knowing the frightening side helps you appreciate the merciful side way more. That's the whole point. God is both. 2 Chronicles, let's take a look at the next one. 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 7 through 8. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all of these Ephraimites. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. He does both. He rises up and he casts down. That's very important. Isaiah 45, 1 through 13. This is a prophecy of Cyrus. This was about 150 years before it happened, I believe. But this is all about predestination and how God can use evil actions to fulfill prophecy. So let's take a look at this. Isaiah 41, 45, 1 through 13. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my co- my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, there is election again, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is none other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun from the west and from the, and from the west that there is none besides me. 
I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who do all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So there's a lot going on here, but it's very clear that God is transparent, that he's taking credit for everything. And reminding people, hey, listen, I'm completely sovereign over everything. And on one part, that's like, remember that God works everything for the good. On another part, it's, you got to fear God. Like God is in charge of everything. If he's going to enact judgment on you, he will enact it. He will bring evil upon you if you're doing evil. He's going to be just, but he's in charge of everything. And another thing to keep in mind is prophecy. If you believe in an in a free will situation like we've been talking about, then the only natural God that's consistent with that is an open theist God. But open theism is not compatible with the Bible. It's a made-up thing because prophecy would not be able to be fulfilled. God has to be completely sovereign and omniscient to fulfill prophecy. He's not waiting around for the Assyrians to decide to attack Israel and say, oh, there it is. Now think about it this way. If if God was just using things for the good, but he doesn't know the future, which is open theism, if if he's, if let's say the Assyrians want to attack Israel earlier than they're supposed to, earlier than when God is bringing judgment upon them, and well, what is God going to do? He can't have that prophecy being fulfilled early. So is he going to restrain them? Well, what does that say about free will? Do you see how that works? It's just, it's total nonsense. Prophecy disproves open theism and therefore free will. <laughs> anyway, let's go on. Amos 3.6. This is a good one. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Did the Old Testament people see disaster and calamity and terrible things as meaningless? As things that just kind of happened that God somehow is going to work for the good? No. If something bad happened to you, if something bad happened to a city, it was God was bringing judgment. It was always credited to God. not, And they didn't question God's character because of that. This whole idea is very new in our modern culture where we are offended by everything. Throughout the Bible, they never questioned God's character when disaster happened. I mean, Job is a good example of that, but that's also, throughout Job, you, you realize that he 
he repented of that because he questioned it. So the take home from all this is that God takes credit for both good and evil. He's the author of reality. If he's outside of time and space and he created time and space, time and space is predetermined. It exists. It's not happening, you know, randomly and he's kind of steering things like a million-armed octopus. No. Time and space is predestined. To our perspective, it seems like we're living it out moment by moment, and we are. We are experiencing choices. Everything is a surprise, and thank God it is. But reality is predestined, and it doesn't matter because it's predestined to the highest possible good. You see that? That's the difference. It doesn't matter. Why would you want to be in control? I don't. I couldn't possibly make the best choices. God's already made those for you. He's predestined your mistakes and your successes. Why? Because if you're elect, that's about showing his glory to you, his, his qualities of love and mercy, building that relationship, and giving you a specific perspective of God that nobody else has through that life that he's choreographed for you. We'll get into more of that later, but let's jump to the book of Job. Job is pretty famous for a lot of stuff, <laughs> suffering and death and you know, just, it's a great book. And the first thing I want to point your attention to is that Job was probably the Job person. Uh, the person of Job was probably around the time of Abraham, meaning at least 2,000 years before Christ. The reason I say that is his wealth was measured in livestock. If you look at Job 1, verse 3, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So they're measuring his wealth by things that weren't wealth later on. Instead of gold and silver, it's more about livestock. He also offered sacrifice without a priest. Job 1.5, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Job did this continually. So he was offering sacrifices, and that was not something you would do once the Levitical system was put in place. So this was before Moses. So sometime before between the flood and Moses. Let's put it that way. I'm guessing it's around Abraham's time. Another clue that we have that this is an old time is that he gave his daughters an inheritance. And if you look at Job 42, 15, and in all the land there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Now, that's something that would not happen, again, with the new you know, Levitical laws and Mosaic law. And so the question is, okay, this was well before that, if he was giving inheritance. Another thing is, Job lived for quite a while, right? And if we remember kind of the, the degradation from Adam to the modern day, people were starting to lose their lifespans, especially after the flood. Job 42, 16 says, And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. So he lived first off enough to have a huge family. They all died. You know, then he lived again to have another huge family, like 10, 10 sons and daughters, you know, multiply all his wealth again. And then after that, he lived another 140 years. So my guess my guess is Job probably lived between 250 and 300 years. 
It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible, but I think it's a reasonable estimate. And so if that's the case, we know Abraham lived to be about 150. And so I think Job could be even before Abraham based on his lifespan. And I think that's reasonable. And why all this is important for so many reasons, but why it's important is because this shows that that the attitudes we're going to cover are very old. They're as old as, you know, right after the flood. Okay, so that's a good indicator of how God was behaving, how people perceived God's behavior surrounding evil and suffering. This is really important. That's why the book of Job is such a good resource. So if we start with Job 1, 6 through 22, Satan allowed to test Job. Let's let's take a look at this, and, and there's a lot that goes on here. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord. Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Ouch. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out and from the presence of the Lord. And then Satan takes Job's property and children. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, (laughs) and I feel so bad for Job, There came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came yet another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, (laughs) there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. That's what we got to pay attention to. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So what was Job's immediate reaction? The calamity came from God. God is not wrong for doing that. And the Lord gives and takes away. So there's other things we can take from this passage of verses. The first one is that Satan obeys God, right? And there was a... There's something that is easy to miss in this whole interchange of the divine council where Satan appears and basically God is saying, look, 
you know, look at Job. And the heavenly host is there, and he's he's presenting Job to the heavenly host and to Satan, saying, "Look, have you seen my servant Job?" Now, is that because Job's free will made him one of the most righteous people on earth? No. Read from the understanding of all the things we've been talking about, God acted in in Job's life, and and helped him be righteous. He gave him irresistible power to obey him and use him as an example. And he's using him in a, as an example throughout this whole story. So that's why he presents him to Satan. He says, look, basically the work of my hands. What do you think? And Satan, as usual, does something to try to discredit God in front of the whole heavenly host. So you have to keep in mind the whole context of this. Satan is basically throwing the gauntlet down and saying, well, you know, your power, it's not your power that's making him righteous. It's not, you know, he's not righteous because you did anything. He's righteous because you, you know, you're just blessing him. If you take all away his his things, he's going to curse you to your face. So what's happening in that in that challenge that Satan gave God? Well, Satan is challenging God's ability to create righteousness in someone, Right? Because guess what? If you if God takes away his material things, Job will lose his salvation. That's basically the line of reasoning. That he'll he'll choose to act differently and curse God, and there you go, he's gonna lose his salvation. This is what this whole thing is about. And then the rest of Job is, you know, this whole elaborate thing is happening. But Satan is challenging God's word and God's character in front of the whole heavenly host. And God is saying, fine. You will falsify yourself, and I will prove that I'm right. Go test Job, and you'll see that I will, I will give him the endurance to to succeed. Don't kill him, because then he, you know, then the, the experiment is over. But you can test him, and you know, obviously Job struggles with it a little bit. But Job is elect. Job is righteous in God's eyes, and the first thing that happens, what does Job do? He gives glory to God. And he knows that it's God's decision to do that, and he doesn't question God's judgment. He gets afflicted with more things, and he he starts to question God's judgment, but he's human. He's wrestling with his sin. The point is that God is allowing Satan to falsify himself. And this is such a broader teaching of the evil in our own lives. Satan is behind the evil in the world, but in being behind the evil of the world, he's falsifying his claims against God. You see how that works? By by God allowing Satan to do everything he's doing and being part of this predestined plan, this whole idea of you being your own God, this whole idea of you choosing good and evil and you being responsible for your own life, you know, you don't need God, all the lies of the devil are falsifying themselves because it leads to death. And that is the whole point. And Satan has always challenged God's throne. And God in his infinite wisdom created a way for him to basically prove that he's right, redeem mankind, falsify the devil. It's all interrelated. So keep all this in mind. It's it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's so profound when you look at it from God's perspective, from the top-down view. But again, you know, it's all about God in charge of everything. Job 2, verse 3, and later in, in the second chapter, verse 9 and 10, 
And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? This is again, you know, after the first strike. And there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, this is really important. So God is saying, see, I told you he hold fast to integrity, even though, you know, evil has come upon him. That's the power of God. Even though you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Why is this so important? Because God would never destroy anybody without reason. He, he, all the things that he brings about a person's life or in the world have a reason. If they're not predestined, then the evil that happens doesn't have a reason why it happens. Do you see how this refutes open theism? It's nonsense. I mean, anyway. But verse later on in verse 9 through 10, <laughs> this part's funny. His wife is, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity after he's gotten sores and you know everything's just you know, gotten really worse. She says, curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job is still not attributing unjustness or injustice to God. He knows that we that it's normal to receive evil from God is the way you also receive good. And it has, it has no bearing on God's character. These attitudes were prevalent thousands of years ago. The people who wrote the Bible did not believe in meaningless evil. They did not believe in, you know, what we believe in today with this whole free will stuff. Everything that came, came from God, one way or another. And you just trusted God's judgment. It was submission to the Most High. It was sovereign, God's sovereignty. So if we go on to the next couple ones, Job 5, it just gets you know more and more obvious. Job 5, verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from the de- from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your suffering shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. Your offspring shall be many. Sorry, not suffering. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a leaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. So what is the point of all this? Well, God is bringing about both good and bad in your life for reasons, for purpose. And in the end, what's what's the good news? The good news is that he's going to rejuvenate everything. You'll, you'll die at a nice ripe old age. Now, of course, this was at the time, but there's also eternal life, right? And so the point is that everything is for your good. If he's rebuking you, he rebukes those he loves, right? And, and compare it to Isaiah 53, verse 5. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. He wounds and he heals. Do you see the parallel? He wounds, God wounds and God heals in the same way that God, the Father, predestined for his son to be wounded so that we could be healed. He wounds and he heals. He does both. He's in charge of both. And we have to trust his judgment. This is very important. Look at Job 12, 14 through 25. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. Both are his. The deceived and the deceiver. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He's the one doing these things. He pours content on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of the darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and he makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. The Lord has done this. He's done it all. Right? I mean, he, he has done everything. Job thirty six fifteen. He delivers the afflicted by the affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Evil has a purpose. They recognize that through and through. Job 41. And this is all about Leviathan. Now, I'm not going to read all this, um, but Leviathan is, you know, this sounds like a dragon to me of some kind. I mean, who knows what it is or what it was, but look at verse 40, uh, chapter 41, verse 18. His sneezing, his sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like eyelids of dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, and from a boiling pot and burning rushes, uh, pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes from his mouth. His neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. I mean, Leviathan is frightening. And th- right before this, was God was talking about Behemoth, how He made Behemoth. So you know, Lev- God's made Behemoth. He's made Leviathan. He's made all these terrifying things to show His power. And again, it's it's to show his power to the elect in, in an indirect way and to display his power against the evil by destroying them and humbling them. So that's a pretty consistent theme throughout the Bible. Job 42, later in 5 through 6, now this is interesting where Job had heard God and sort of was influenced by him, obviously. But this is kind of his maybe totally being born again or kind of moment. I don't know. But it, it seems to me that way, where if you read this, he says, this is after being rebuked by God. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So 
Job was righteous through his works and and kind of heard through the ear, right? And I'm I'm sure that he is elect, obviously, and so God was influencing his choices and helping him be righteous. But now there's the fullness of that reality, which is has been caused by the evil that happened to Job, by the testing that happened. Now he sees God, and he and because of that he despises himself and what he said and how he judged God's actions, right? So he had a a true moment of repentance. And that was why the evil happened. God always knew that Job was going to be righteous and saved and he was going to restore him. And, you know, does Satan know the future? No, Satan just wants to challenge and attack God. And so God used Satan to fulfill this part of the plan, to bring Job back to him even deeper, into a deeper connection, to show his glory to Job, to his friends, to show his glory to the heavenly host, to prove Satan wrong. All of those things were contingent upon God letting Satan do evil to Job and ordaining that. Otherwise, if that hadn't happened, none of this glorious outcome would have happened. Do you see how all this ties together? Now, <clears throat> if you if you look a little bit later, um, we'll actually come back to this, but one more. Job 42, verse 10 through 11. The Lord restores Job's fortunes. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had come before him and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. So all the evil that the Lord had brought upon upon him. Who brought upon him? The Lord. Wasn't Satan, wasn't random, you know, cursed world or just fallen world. It was the Lord. The Lord had brought upon him that evil for a purpose, for a very important purpose. But nonetheless, the Lord brought about it. So, Take all that in consideration. Now, what about a little bit earlier where Job, I'm sorry, where God rebukes uh, Job's friends in ver- chapter 42, verse 7, 7 through 8. Let's take a look at that because there's there's some objection there where after the Lord had spoken these words to Job and the Lord said to Eliphaz, which was one of them, my anger burns against you and, ang- and against your two friends for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And he'll pray for you, and that way I'll accept his prayer for not dealing with you according to your folly. So the question, the, the, the objection is, well, if God is rebuking Job's friends about what they said, does that mean we, we shouldn't attribute evil to God? Because basically what Job's friends were saying is that, you know, God brought this upon you, right? But we've got to look a little deeper than that. It's not, God didn't rebuke Job's friends because they acknowledged God brings evil upon people in judgment. No. they God rebuked Job's friends because they presumed God's judgment. This is a very fine distinction. It's very important. So how we know is, first off, in Job 32... There's Elihu, who's like a young kid, seemingly out of nowhere. He was probably just hanging out with them. 
But Elihu rebukes Job's three friends after they have their monologues. He rebukes Job's friends and, you know, he, he basically says, you know, you know, you're presuming God's judgment. And God did not rebuke Elihu. This is very important. God did not rebuke Elihu. He's the only one that he, he wasn't rebuked. So why? What does Elihu say that he wasn't rebuked? Right? Why wasn't he rebuked? Well, let's take a look at what he said that God did not rebuke him for. Job 33, verse 9. And we'll go through 30. This is Elihu speaking. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts at my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. He's quoting Job now, I believe. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. <laughs> kind of reminds me of this whole topic of free will and reading into scripture. In a dream and a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the, cho the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that, that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, that's interesting, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with youth. Let him return to the days of youth, his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. And he sees his face without a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall look upon light. Behold, God does all these things, twice, three times with a man, to bring his soul back from the pit, that he may be lightened with the light of life. So, Job, I'm sorry, Elihu was very spot on. Essentially, it's, you know, Job is very poetic, and so it, it's a tough read sometimes, but Elihu, basically, what did he say? He said that there's a purpose for everything. There's a purpose for the evil that's happening. And submit to God's judgment because he's going to restore you. That's the point. Like, he doesn't just, you know, do things meaninglessly. Elihu did not get rebuked by God. The other three friends were rebuked. Why? Because they presumed God's judgment. They thought that Job was wicked. And they said, you know, you're just wicked. That's why God's judging you. And so they're being very self-righteous. And they're talking falsely about God, meaning they're attributing God's reasoning or God's judgment to what's happening. As opposed to saying, well, God is, has a purpose for this somehow. You know, either, even if you were righteous, I'm sure that there's a purpose for it. That was more Elihu's position. Job's friends were judging Job. And Job's position was, well, God is unjust, I'm righteous, why is he 
pushing me with all these things, right? So both Job and Job's friends presume something about God and about the evil that was happening rather than seeing it for what it is and remembering God's character. That's really important. And that's why they were rebuked. God was using all these things that were happening to prove to Satan and the heavenly host that his word is going to stand, to give Job a deeper faith, and to set precedence for suffering, for evil, for all these things that we deal with today. He was not punishing Job because he's wicked, which is what his friends thought. And he was not punishing Job unjustly, you know, just willy-nilly, which is what Job thought. Eventually, initially he didn't remember. Job didn't initially think that, but eventually he kind of caved. And especially with his friends egging him on and calling him wicked, he he kind of got defensive. He said, well, I'm not wicked. I've been righteous. How can God punish me, right? But initially Job was enduring and, and showed his faith, the faith that God gave him. So what's the point? What's the point of Job? What is the point of this whole book? The point is that Job didn't, ca- didn't eventually didn't trust God's judgment. Even though he believed God was in charge of evil, which is very interesting. Armenians, Armenians, Armenianism, not Armenians, like Armenians from the country. Armenians, Armenianism, people who believe in free will, are worse than Job. Because they don't trust God is in charge of evil. And they don't trust God's judgment if God was in charge of evil. When you say that God predestines evil, they judge God and say, well, that makes God evil then. No, it doesn't. God is infinitely intelligent and uses things to move along the the needle. And you have to trust God's judgment because he's infinitely intelligent. But when you judge God and judge his motives like Job and his friends, and how Armenians do, and then try to rescue him and, and create your fake theology, which doesn't lead to any anything good, That that's not the right way to do things. Look at Scripture. Now look at Jeremiah 19, 1 through 6. This is an important one that comes as an objection. And it's about the wording of this passage is very challenging at first. But let's go through it. The broken flask. Jeremiah 19, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is going to be Gehenna, which Christ talks about as hell, as a type for future hell, at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. Remember, this is where they were sacrificing children. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. <laughs> because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, this is important, or did, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when, his, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. 
So the objection is this. If, if God is saying, I did not command or decree this, nor did it even come to my mind. How can God decree evil? How can he ordain evil? Well, first off, you have to context this in terms of everything else we've covered and everything that we will cover that is seemingly contradictory. Because if God did not command or decree this, then that stands in the face of the other things we were talking about, where God is very transparent about taking ownership for everything that happens. So what is what is happening here? Because again, the wording seems as if, man, I just didn't, I did not decree this to happen and they just went ahead and did this and now I have to judge them. That's not the God of the Bible. That's us reading free will into the Old Testament from an open theist perspective where God didn't expect this to happen. He didn't decree it. It just kind of happened outside of his decree. Is that what's happening here? No, the answer is definitely not. The point here is this. First, remember election and reprobation. There are elect who God chooses, and there are reprobate who God didn't choose to save. They still have a purpose. Okay? So their pur- what is their purpose? Their purpose is to show God's wrath. Just like he called Pharaoh, he said he rose him up for that his power may be displayed through him, through his plagues and all these things, to show the people of Israel who he was saving, like, who is saving you? This is the God of the world, right? But he needed Pharaoh, who was reprobate, to, as a canvas, to paint that wrath on. Let's put it that way. So what's happening here? Well, God decreed things to happen, but he never de- He never told people to go and sacrifice their children. That was never part of his commands to his people. Nor would he nor would he even think of telling them to do that. That's what he's saying here. But he did decree these reprobate people to go and sacrifice their children in the sense that he ordained it, he predestined it, so that he could compare and contrast and show the elect, like, look, this is what happens life outside of God. I would never do this. I would never tell you to do this. And yet, if I'm not influencing you, if I'm not giving you my spirit, if I'm not in control, if I haven't chosen to save you, however many ways you want to think about it, if God's not doing the work, then this is the default. You're going to burn your children and do all these despicable things. So God did ordain the, these things to happen. But when he says, I didn't decree it, he's he's meaning I didn't this wasn't one of my commandments to your people. And yet they're doing these things thinking that they're, you know, pleasing God or pleasing a God. And this, this is nonsense. You know, God decreed Satan. He brought him into existence. Satan was sinning from the beginning. Remember as the villain and Satan, Baal is basically Satan, right? And so God declared all these things to happen. He predestined them, but he would never declare and order people to burn their children. And that's the point he's making. It's a compare and contrast between the reprobate and the elect. When he says, it didn't come into my mind, does that mean that God didn't know that they would sacrifice their children? No, God is omniscient. Of course he would knew. He predestined it. 
these priests and elders that were sacrificing, they were doing it on the, claiming to be doing it on the authority of God. Okay, and God is saying, I would never, I would never do that. So why is that important? Because the elect, there's always people watching and reading and learning, like you and I are studying this. The elect who are witnessing this, God is making sure that they understand what is of God and what is not of God. Okay, yes, God decrees everything, but God never commanded the elect and the people who he wants to save to burn their children. Absolutely not. Whereas these reprobate, as you'll see over and over again, they're, they're false prophets, they're false priests. They're using the authority of God to do despicable things. And God is being very clear. This is not who I am. And I'm going to show my justice and wrath on the evil that's happening. And if I haven't chosen to save you, if you're not in me and I'm in you, this is exactly what's happening. And you are reprobate. And I will destroy everybody who's like that. Right, and so this is this has to be read with a finer eye, and in the context of everything else, it's not an objection at all. It's just God being consistent by showing to the elect His mercy, His justice, His character, His desires, and showing to the reprobate His power and destroying them, while also using them as an example of what He isn't. You need both. You need the elect to show that he's loving and just and merciful. And you need the reprobate to show his power. You need both. And that's that's something we have to keep in mind throughout this entire series, is that God is using both to his purposes. Now let's, on that note, let's look at how evil is predestined. In Genesis 20, Joseph As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's brothers meant it for evil. From their perspective, they were doing evil. From God's higher-up perspective, it was the necessary step for saving a lot of other people. Now, Joseph is a type of Christ. We won't get into that here, but there's a lot of typology with Joseph and Jesus. And the evil that was meant for Joseph saved a lot of people. The evil that was meant for Christ saved a lot of people. It was a fulfillment of that, right? What Joseph experienced, Jesus fulfilled fully through his life and ministry and death and and resurrection. So evil is predestined. There's no way around that. John 9, 3. Jesus answered, this is when Jesus heals a, a man born of, with blindness. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of, the God, might, works of God might be displayed in him. Because right before in verse 2, they said, And the, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is an important point. I mean, they didn't believe in karma or anything like that, but they did believe, again, the evil that happened, there was probably a reason. You sinned, you know, God was not happy with you for some reason. And so this is a perfect picture of Jesus saying, listen, he didn't sin. There's nothing that God is punishing him for, but rather his blindness was meant to reveal God's glory. 
If he wasn't blind, he couldn't get healed. And we would, ne- we as people who are reading this and studying it, thousands, countless millions of people who have read this verse and studied the life of Jesus would never have known about his healing. Do you see how important that is? That man, that one blind man had to be stricken with blindness, just as God said before. He's the one who makes mute and deaf and blind. But does he do so because he enjoys it? No, he does it for his glory. In this case, for that person to be healed so that God's glory could be revealed. So there's a purpose for everything. Romans 9, verse 10 to 23. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, (laughs) not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. I mean, that's a pretty plain verse about election. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That was predestined so that his purpose might continue. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends on not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's the whole point. Let's keep going. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. This is what we were just talking about. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? One of the biggest objections still today. For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power... Sorry for the motorcycle, my goodness. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So this, I mean, this is some of the most beautiful writing there is on predestination. And how much stuff can we take away from this? Well, first, you know, potter and clay, that metaphor has been around for quite a while. We can compare it to Isaiah 45, uh, 9 through 12, we talked about this before. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms him, what are you making or your work has no handles? Are we in a position to question God's sovereign plan? We aren't. Proverbs sixteen four: The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. You can't get around predestination. And predestination means both good and evil. It doesn't work like he predestined some things, but then other things kind of left. For, it doesn't work that way. It's an all or nothing. Matthew seven twenty one. I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He never knew them. But wait a minute, he knows his sheep. So the father gave him, he knows his sheep, the sheep know his voice. But then there's guys who claim to be saved, claim to do mighty works, and he never knew them. Was Jesus existing always? Yes, he's God. He's second person of the Trinity. If he never knew them, that means from the beginning of time, these people were never saved. Does that make sense? They were reprobate. They were predestined to to serve that purpose and then be destroyed. And it doesn't matter because they never cared to be in a relationship with God. They were destined for that purpose. So there's no pity to be having on those people because God didn't choose them. Now, we don't know who that is. That's the thing you got to remember about election. We don't know who God will show mercy on. So we can't, that's that's one thing you got to avoid. You can't use election and say, well, that person's obviously reprobate. We don't know. We don't know. We have to be earnestly standing up for the gospel and spreading the gospel and hoping that God will open their minds and their hearts. But the ones who do perish and are reprobate, they never wanted to be with God, period. It's a whole different life. They didn't have life in them. Luke 4, verse 25 to 29. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but the Naaman, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. <laughs> and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which they were built. The town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So they, they basically were really upset with him as usual, tried to kill him. But why? Well, two reasons. First off, the people who he mentioned were Gentiles, right? So that really pissed off the the Hebrews, the Jews around him, especially the elitist Pharisees. And this verse points to election. Not everybody's going to be saved. It was that, that idea was just as offensive then in Jesus' time as it is now. So keep that in mind. God did not choose to heal all widows. He did not choose to heal all lepers. He chose to heal some, you know, few choice people. And in this case, they were Gentiles to show, to prove a point. He could have healed everybody. Why didn't he? Because he had a point to prove and we have to trust God's judgment. People didn't like election back then and they still don't like it today. Why? Because it's humbling. It's the most humbling thing you can believe. You have no credit to take. Absolutely none. John 6, verse 64. But there are some of you who don't believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So who who was it? That was Judas. Did he know? Yes. Did he invite Judas? Yes. Predestined to serve his purpose. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of the disciples turned back and no, and no longer walked with him. So, again, pretenders, people who say they're saved, but they're not. 
Genuine faith is a genuine change of heart. And that's only possible if the Father draws you and has chosen you and God, you know, and, and the Spirit seals you and sanctifies you, Christ receives you. God has to do the work. There are many who will say, Lord, Lord, but they're not saved. They were pretenders, especially the ones that are false prophets and false teachers. There's many like that, even in Jesus' time. It's all over the place. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew Judas would betray him, but he needed someone that was reprobate to be in his fold so that he would betray him. You see how that works? He needed the devil to be part of his group in a sense, right? The devil was in Judas, son of perdition, so that he would be betrayed and the, the scriptures would be fulfilled. So it was necessary. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that builders the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They were destined to disobey. Those who stumble against the cross were destined to stumble. It is a stumbling block because the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The gospel is offensive. Election is offensive. It's never going to change. The world is in opposition to all of this because the world is based on free will. It's on the garden. It's the lie from the Garden of Eden that we can choose. You can do whatever you want. And so you come in and start speaking about God predestining everything and just be grateful and take one day at a time. That doesn't jive with the world. It's going to be offensive. There's a lot of offensive things about this to the world. To a believer, they are reassuring, empowering, and reaffirming. Acts 4, 26-28, popular verse. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They believed in predestination. The cross was predestined. If the cross was predestined, all of human history is predestined. If the evil for the cross was predestined, then evil had to exist. Do you see how that works? For Christ to be crucified and to show his salvation and to save us, there had to be evil in the first place to be saved from, and that would crucify Christ. It's all It all goes to the cross, man. The cross is the central hinge of history that everything moves out, outward. Revelations 13.8. Let's skip a little ahead. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone, this is the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Who is taking the mark of the beast? Is it the elect? No. The mark of the beast is a counterfeit of the devil to counterfeit election. That's his elect. The people who are going to take the mark are not elect. If you're elect, your free will is not going to suddenly take the mark and then, oops, you lose your salvation. That's not how it works. This is not at all how it works. The mark of the beast is Satan's 
final little counterfeit dance where he is counterfeiting election. He's saying, these are my people. Well, good, have them. You're all going to be destroyed. And who is going to take that? The people whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, if you're elect, you're not going to take the mark of the beast. Count on it. So what's the take home? Take home is evil is predestined. It has a purpose. What we call evil, God uses for his glory. We can't judge that. It's not our position to judge. We can't even possibly understand the greater plan that God has. All right, let's look at reprobation. Reprobation is, you know, God basically making people reprobate. (laughs) So it's pretty simple. 1 Samuel 2, verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Kind of a little foreshadowing for Christ here. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death so they wouldn't listen to their father. This is Samuel's uh, kids that were being very disobedient. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 15. And this, this is about Rehoboam, and he's taking counsel. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. It was a turn of, event, of affairs brought about by the Lord. What was it? What happened? The king did not listen to the people. He didn't take the right counsel, and it led to the kingdom being divided because God is working his plan. You can't look at these things like with blinders on and say, oh, just that situation. There's a, this leads to this, leads to that, leads to that. Everything has a purpose. 2 Kings 19, 6 through 7. It's about the king of Assyria. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Just like the Pharaoh in the Exodus God is hardening hearts. I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. He's going to do it. God's going to do it. Now let's let's look a little later. This is a little later in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 19, verse 25 to 28, where God is rebuking the king of Assyria. But this is, so king of Assyria goes on, he's boasting against God and And now God is responding. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? Predestination. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your conspiracy has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. 
This year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And he goes on with that. But look at these first couple verses that, first off, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from the days of old, now I bring to pass. God is reaffirming, listen, I predestined this. I've even predestined you to take care of these different cities and conquer. I've made you king. I predestined all the victories that you had over other people. And now I'm going to put my hook in your nose and I'm going to turn you back. I'm going to do what, what I want to do. I've predestined it. It's going to happen. So he's humbling him. And then look at also Isaiah 10. I look at this one, 5, five through 16, judgment on the arrogant Assyria. It's a nice comparison. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations for a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karshemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, My strength of my hand, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on their thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And so, as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout, his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. So the king of Assyria is basically under the illusion, under the free will illusion. I've done this. I've done all these great things. It was my wisdom, my power, and God is reminding him, no, it's not. And by proxy, reminding us, the elect, to not fall into that temptation. Remember the many times he said, beware that you say it was your own hand that brought you here. This is, he's using this king as an example and judging him and humbling him to show that God is in charge. You don't have free will. You do not have free will. God uses evil. He uses good. He punishes people. He brings justice. He is in charge of everything. Joshua 11, verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. That was the will of the Lord. So they should receive no mercy. That was his will for them to not receive mercy. But wait, I thought he's merciful. Yes, he is merciful to the elect. That's how you reconcile things with predestination is election. 
God is very merciful to the elect, the ones he's chosen to give to Christ. But he's not merciful to the ones he passed over. They're, they don't receive his, his benefit, his spirit, his salvation. They are just evil because God is not in them. So God's using them for justice and for a purpose. But nevertheless, he predestined it. Exodus 14, 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This is a repeating theme is know that I am the Lord. Know that I am the Lord. It's all about knowing that I am God and not just merciful God, but just God, powerful God. It was also, you know, a lot of these cultures, they were ruled by fallen angels and principalities, and he was bringing down those false gods. It was a spiritual war and showing that he is master of the heavenly host. There's only one God. So all of these people were allowed to be raised up so that he could bring them down and reveal his power by contrast. Otherwise, it would there would be no example. Deuteronomy 2, verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. Hardening hearts. 2 Chronicles 22, verse 7. But it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come through his going to visit Joram. For when he came there, he went out with Joram to meet Jehu, the son of Nimsi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. But it was expected by God, hoped for by God? No, it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come through. See, Old Testament constantly looks at suffering, evil, you know, justice, as all predetermined and all coming from God. It's, it's consistent throughout Scripture. That's why I said it's, it's not consistent to believe in Arminianism. Isaiah 6, 8 through 12. Isaiah's commission from the Lord. This is verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is fulfilled through Jesus when you know he comes and people don't believe him and he fulfills that prophecy. But even here, it's it's reprobation. God is saying, go and tell this people, this is what I'm declaring for you. You're not going to see. I'm blinding your eyes. And he's hardening their hearts. So you, you have to, at some point, really call into question this whole free will thing. Isaiah 44, 18 through 20. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? 
This is about idolatry and how they're just incapable. It's like those verses from Romans, that the mind that is set on the flesh cannot obey God. It can't even see God. So this is showing predestination, but it's also showing total depravity, that we can't make a move towards God unless God cancels you know, that total depravity through his irresistible grace. And he does so with the elect, the people he's chosen unconditionally before time began to reveal his plan to. And thank God, thank God that he has shown that to us because it could have been us. The, we could have been reprobate and you would have never even been aware of it. That's the crazy thing. Romans one twenty eight, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Compare that to Ezekiel 3, verse 25. And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed on you, and you shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, God, he who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So God is in charge of whether people will actually hear him or repent or have a change of heart. It's pretty clear. Pretty clear. It seems like God is responding to man when God gave them up to reprobate mind, but God is, it's more like God is assigning credit to himself of what's happening. God is not, people didn't act really bad and say, oh, you know, I'm just going to give you up then, fine, I'm not going to save you. Again, that's God responding to history. You got to get out of that mindset because it's not consistent with scripture. God is taking credit for what's happening through that passage, not God responding to the present moment and then giving up. That's not the God of the Bible. God predestines and takes credit. He's transparent. He's just. He's merciful. Romans 11, 1 through 10, the remnant of Israel. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people from whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, the elect. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There you go. Election in the Old Testament, election in the New Testament. But if it, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Yeah, it's not by the will of man. It's not by anything we do. It's by grace of God, by his work. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their neck in their backs forever. God is predestining everything, and he predestines reprobation. He reprobates people. They're unconditionally reprobated, though. 
He didn't look at certain people and say, you know what, you're, I don't like you, so I'm just going to not save you. No, it's all unconditional. It's not something we can understand very well, but we can be grateful for it. We can be appreciative for our own salvation. Last but not least, Revelation 17, 16, and then 10, and the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Even the beast at the end of the age and what's happening with the prostitute and and the judgment, God has put it into their hearts to do these things so that his plan is fulfilled. It's all going to make sense. You know, God's foresight makes sense in hindsight. So what's what's the take home from all these verses? God hardens who he wants to harden. He saves who he wants to save. And he has a, a purpose behind it all. There's nothing that happens meaninglessly. People don't lose their salvation. God is behind the things and he's openly transparent about that. So God is in charge of evil. That's another one. 2 Samuel 12, 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is David's punishment for having an affair. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So he's going to bring the evil up against you as punishment especially because you're a king, you're a leader. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So David was incited to do a census. And later, like if we look at Chronicles 21, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to, to number Israel. So really it's, God, in this case, seems like allowed Satan to incite David. But if we look at, you know, some other ones, like Judges 9.23, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So God sent the evil spirit. God said to Satan, remember Job. Now compare this to 1 Kings 22, 19, verse 19 through 22. Here's another one. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? This is about um, basically Ahab. He's being disobedient, idolatrous. That he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. Probably Satan, but who knows. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. God's in charge of evil. He's in charge of evil spirits. Even though evil spirits, like remember when uh, Jesus exercised the, the demons in the man and they go into the legion, into the pigs. So I was trying to say. Demons 
evil does, Satan doesn't worship God, but he obeys God. That's an important distinction. Evil obeys God. And that's why he's sovereign. Obviously, he, he sends out evil spirits if he needs to. He, he ordains things to happen. He lets Satan do certain things. He counsels. He brings the divine counsel together and, you know, assigns roles and duties. I mean, God is sovereign. And he determines whether things are successful. Evil spirits obey God even though they don't worship him. Another thing I want to bring your attention to before we jump into the book of Ezekiel is the evil of success. Throughout the, throughout the scriptures, evil is not just negative things that happen, but it's actually positive things that happen. In fact, Adam and Eve fell because of temptation, of, of a positive thing, right? The temptation to be their own gods. They didn't fall because of evil, you know, some sort of suffering. And so the point is that when we look at God ordaining things, and people have a problem with him ordaining evil or suffering. A lot of the evil in the world is is success. And I'll prove it to you. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6 through 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Success is is evil. Material success. It can be. It's not all the time, but it can be. Ezekiel 16, verse 13 through 15. Thus you, this is about Israel being a faithless bride. And it's just, this is a beautiful (laughs) chapter about how God basically adorned Israel. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. And your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. So God had bestowed the splendor on Israel. He's making her beautiful. But you trusted in your beauty, here we go, and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You trusted in your beauty, just like, who else? Lucifer. Lucifer trusted in his beauty. But God predestined that so that he would show the folly of the self, of our ego, and and destroy Lucifer and show justice over that. Remember Deuteronomy 8, 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Throughout the Bible. 1 John 2, verse 16. Do not love the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, now keep keep this verse in mind, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Keep those three things in mind, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Compare that to Genesis 3, 6, where we had the fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh, there was delight to the eyes, right? What does it say? Desire of the eyes and pride of life and desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the fruit was about success, man. It wasn't about suffering. And it was the most evil thing that happened because it, it plummeted all of mankind into 
this world. The first sin was about success. The first two commandments are about success. Idolatry, creating images. You know, how many times throughout Scripture does God warn to not rely on your own hand, to not think that it was your free will that did it? Even with the good things, because that's evil. So evil, our understanding of evil has to be broadened. Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be how to abound. And in, in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. It's about knowing how to deal with both. And God has ordained both success and failure. To God, it's just part of the plan. To us, we get wrapped up in the emotion of it. That's what I said at the beginning. Is let's. I hope you can see this without emotion. Proverbs 4.27, Do not soar to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. There's evil to the right, and there's evil to the left. Things that look shiny can also be evil. Matthew 7.13, The narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. You can go by the way of destruction where you blame God and you say, oh, there's all this evil in the world. Or you can get lost to success. Remember the parable of the sower? How some seeds got choked by tribulation, but then some seeds, or they got dried up by tribulation. The sun dried them up. But some seeds got choked by thorns and thistles, by the cares of this world, by material success. God is painting a picture of both of these things being evil. Success is just as evil, if probably not more, than the evil that happens in our life. So if you're going to have an issue with God, where am I going with this? If you're going to have an issue with God predestining evil, then you have to have an issue with him predestining success as well. Because God predestines success to test us and to prove a point in many situations. He brings those things into our life to, to test us. And so if you have an issue with him predestining evil, then you also should have an issue with him predestining the good things too, the success. Because everything that comes, comes from God in order that his plan may be fulfilled. That is the context of our life here. And so what's the take-home? Well, the take-home is God created both success and failure. Remember the end goal of salvation. We're still moving towards the kingdom. Until then, all this up and down, good and bad, it's just moving that plan along. Now, this idea of the Hegelian dialectic comes up. And in today's world of conspiracy theories, if you know what a Hegelian dialectic is, you have probably associated it to evil people. And the definition is an interpretive method in which the contradiction between a proposition thesis, and its antithesis is resolved at a higher level of truth or synthesis. In layman's terms, it's problem-reaction-solution. I want to bring a solution, so I'm going to create the problem so that you react and I introduce my solution. Now, it's very important that you understand this. Hegelian dialectic is not evil. 
it has been used for evil. Why? Because the people at the top believe that they're God. They want to be God. They want to play God with all these little games of duality. But God is playing them. So in the end, it's fine. But Hegelian dialectic is how God reveals his plan through scripture. Again, you have to disassociate this whole idea of Hegelian dialectic being evil. It's not. It's been used for evil. But God is, that's why they, again, they're trying to copy God in everything. If you look throughout the Bible, God has a solution. He creates both the problem and the reaction, and he brings about the solution. Why? To show precedence, to show his glory, to show who he is. It's all about showing. All of history is about showing and creating precedence and bringing everything to fulfillment that has been predestined. Problem. Israel wants a king. Reaction. They're going to get Saul. Saul ends up being a bad boy. Solution is David. Why? Because God wanted David. So he brought these things to pass so that people would have David. And David was a type of Christ. You see how it all ties back to Christ? It's all related. Problem. Bathsheba lures David. Or I shouldn't say she lured him. She wasn't trying to lure him, but David, you know, sees Bathsheba and he has an affair. Reaction, Solomon is born. Solution, the first temple is built. You got to work backwards to understand God's plan here. If you work forwards, you, you think that God is just reacting to things. God wanted a first temple. So he worked backwards and created the events necessary for that to happen. And along the way, he imparts justice for the things that he had to declare that were evil, right? Like David having an affair with Bathsheba. That was had to be punished, even though God had, decla- had declared it, right? So there's a good reason for all this. But stick with me. Man, here's another one. Pro- problem, man has a sin nature. Reaction, the fall, solution cross. The cross could not have been possible without the fall. And it, it all starts from there. So God is master of good and evil. He's omniscient. He's all powerful. He's morally perfect. And he's using history and reality to accomplish his purpose in a way that we can't even fathom. Revelations 19.11, then I saw the rider on the white horse. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's both judge and jury and executioner and general. He's in charge of everything, life and death. You know, if you're, if you're cooking vegetables, here's a, just like a random metaphor, but if you're cooking vegetables, parts of those vegetables have to be destroyed in order for you to enjoy your meal. This is the same thing here. The end result justifies the means. So it's very important, very important to keep this in mind. The Hegelian dialectic is not evil. It is a method about revealing truth. God is revealing truth throughout history through duality of mistakes, failures, good, evil. He's he's the master of good and evil. That's why Satan tried to get Adam and Eve to be like God. Say, oh, you, you can know what's good and evil. How can we possibly know? How can we possibly know what is good and evil unless we know the whole extent of reality? If we know the future, 
then we know truly that something that happens is going to be good or bad. Because again, success could be evil, right? The thing, the, the winning the lottery might be the worst thing that happens to you because you might become lost in the world and, and lose your faith. All right now, now again, if you're elect, that's not going to happen. But it, we don't know who's elect, number one, but we don't know what, what good and what evil comes into our life. So it's not up to us to even judge what is good or evil to some extent, right? In, in the extent of predestination. Okay, book of Ezekiel. Boy, we got we got a lot of content in this time. I told you it's it's a it's a big one. It's a big one. This is a big episode. Book of e, Book of Ezekiel. But I hope it's edifying. I hope you get plenty of stuff to think about and to study. Ezekiel 2 verse 3 through 5. And he said to me, "Son of man, I send you the people of Israel to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. God is setting a legal precedent. Ezekiel 6 through 8. So it doesn't matter whether they listened or not, because God's already made his choice, but he's setting a legal precedent. Somebody, there was a prophet there, so that future generations, when I do other things, there's a precedent. You got to start thinking like that. Ezekiel 6, 8 through 10. Yet I will leave some of you alive when you have among the nations some who escape the sword and when you are scattered through the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that was depart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after other idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Now, wait a minute. These people did evil. Now God's going to do them evil. He's just. He ordained it. He predestined it. He's in charge of evil. And why is he doing it? And the, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Remember that constant theme is about knowing that he's the Lord, both in his mercies and in his wrath. Now again, if you're elect, you don't get that wrath, thank God. But you should know about it. Ezekiel 7, 19 to 25. Now, this one has a good point in it. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. This is all about the judgment of Jerusalem and their idolatry and all the stuff they were doing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride, and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore I make it an unclean thing to them. He's going to make them throw their gold away. That's how bad it's going to get. I will give it to, into the hands of the foreigners for prey and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. So God is giving it to the wicked of the earth for spoil. How could he provide this judgment if there weren't wicked people that he had to ordain and create? Think about that. In order for him to fulfill this prophecy, again, prophecy 
proves God's omniscience. He had to have wicked people that he could use for this purpose. And then he'll enact judgment on those wicked people too. Because he used them for that purpose. But he needed wicked people to do these things. And he's allowing them and basically decreeing that robbers will enter and profane his place. He is decreeing this. What's happening? Let's look further. Ezekiel 11, verses 13 and onward through 21. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatia, the son of Benaniah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice, Ah, God, ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And then the next chapter is Israel's new heart and spirit. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore, say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off from among the nations, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. He was the one keeping them safe. This is the remnant. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Beautiful. And what is this about? Well, it's all setting a precedent for the cross. This is all setting a precedent. God has to have a legal precedent for giving his spirit freely. And basically taking over our will, which is limited and depraved, with his unlimited will that is perfectly moral through his Holy Spirit. There has to be a legal precedent for that. So you have constant covenants and, and rebellions to, to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has to take over, so that there's no question, so that the lie of Satan, who is representing ego and, and individuality, so that his lies will be falsified, that there will never be a claim like that against God ever again, that you can be your own God, that God has to override your will. He has to be in you. He has to be doing the work in order for you to be saved and live. All of human history is a legal precedent for that giving of the Spirit, which happened at the cross, right? After the cross. But let's go on to Ezekiel 13, 20-23. This is about some prophetesses using God's name to do evil. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds. And I will tear them from your arms, and I will let the souls whom you hunt go free, the souls like birds. Your veils also I will tear off and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hands as prey. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, pay attention to that one, Although I have not grieved him and you have encouraged the wicked, 
that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. Therefore, you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. These prophetesses were using the name of God to grieve people unjustly. God will grieve people justly. Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. Remember this one. The Lord will not cast off forever. We talked about it earlier. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So he's the one causing the grief. And if he does so, he's doing it justly. That's what he's saying. He's making a distinction between what these women are doing, where, you know, they're, they're just grieving people and giving them fake news in the name of God. And it's, it's like that whole thing with, with the priests sacrificing their children in the name of God and, and being on, on the authority of God. They're not in alignment with God. God is not grieving people, and they're, they're grieving people unjustly. Right now, did God decree that? Yes, he did decree the injustice to prove that he isn't unjust, if that makes any sense. He decreed these prophetesses to unjustly grieve people so that he could remind the elect and the people that he doesn't unjustly grieve people, that evil outside of God, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get injustice. And he's rebuking them and casting judgment on them because their purpose has been done. They, they have done their purpose. And so he's not causing the grief. Remember that difference between transcendent and participation. God is transcendent. He's outside of time and space. And he also participates in time and space for various things. One of them being justice. But he, in this case, he's distinguishing between the prophetesses causing them grief and him actually causing people grief, Right? He causes people grief ju- justly, like godly grief. And these evil people who you predestined to exist so he could show his justice are causing people unjust grief in the name of God. Keep going. Ezekiel 14, 6 through 11. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separate himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man, and I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Again. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word... I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him, and I will destroy him from the midst of my people of Israel. Who's deceiving? God is doing the deceiving. Does that make God a deceiver? No, absolutely not. There's a point that God is teaching here, that if if a prophet, so-called prophet, is disobeying God and answering somebody who's an idolater, who, who God wouldn't have no dealings with, that's a sure sign that that prophet is reprobate, that God has blinded his eyes to prove justice later. So you got to distinguish between God ordaining and God being culpable. Okay. A lot of the times Armenians look at this and say, well, God is guilty then, you know, we can't do that. Well, he's not. 
God can ordain evil and not be evil. Whole different. This is a whole different thing. Evil of success. Again, Ezekiel 16, 48 through 50. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. This is Israel being personified. Behold, this guilt was, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. That's the evil of success, just like Israel being a faithless bride. So success is just as evil. Now let's look at Ezekiel 16, a little bit later, verses 59 through 63. This is the everlasting covenant. And I want to look at, we can, we can start from 59. For, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Which one is that? That's one with Jesus. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give to them, and I and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember me and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord. That's a foreshadowing of the cross. When he atones. So it's all about the cross. All of these things is a lead up to the cross. It's all about giving context and precedent for creating a new covenant, showing man's inability to stick to the covenant in the first place for God needing to do the atoning work. It's all context for that. Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs at a tender one, and I myself will plant it on high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. It's about the fullness of the Gentiles, the new covenant. What's going on here? God is talking about what he's going to do with his new covenant. But he is the master of life and death. He is the one who brings life. He's the one who takes it away. That right there, just the fact that he's a master of life and death, should unequivocally answer the question of, is, is evil predestined? What we think is evil, which to God is useful and, and necessary. Ezekiel 18, 21 through 23. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins and that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressors that he has, transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn away, turn from his way and live? 
Let's look at Ezekiel a little bit later in that. It's still 18, but verse 30 through 32. Cast away, this is 31 actually, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. God has no pleasure in any of the evil that he ordained to happen so that the cross could come to pass. This short period of time, compared to eternity, where evil has to exist, God takes absolutely no pleasure in it. But it's necessary. You know, it's like, think of a process that you have to do where you don't, there's a part of the process you just really don't like, but it has to be done. Same with this, on a cosmic level. Ezekiel 20, 21 through 26. God is showing that he is the Lord. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules. By which if a person does them, he shall live. They profane my Sabbaths. They Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Right? He did it for the sake of his name, to prove who he is, to show who he is. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries. Because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. Who gave them? I gave them. And I defiled them through their very gifts and their offering up of all their firstborn, that I might devastate them. There's the answer to that previous verse about, I think it was Jeremiah, that it didn't come into his mind. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. I defiled them through their very gifts, as Ezekiel 20, verse 26, in their offspring, in their offering up all their firstborn, that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. There's the answer right there. God predestined them to offer up their children. I mean, it's 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 crazy, right? I mean, it's it's a it's something that we can't understand because we don't think on the big picture level. But God did that for the wicked so that he would show his justice and power and show who he is, show what he doesn't like. Everything is about understanding and coming to terms with who God is in history. Part of God and who he is is God's wrath, God's sense of justice, right? God's power, God's control over life and death, over evil, over good. We would not be able to know these things unless there were precedents and historical happenings. And for that to happen, God had to create people who were reprobate and evil who would do such things. And God is just in doing that. There's no, there's no inconsistency with his character. God uses evil for judgment. He brings evil upon other people. When he needs to, he lets evil spirits do what they need to do. They, the spirits obey him. He's the master of everything. God is fair. He never does anything unjustly without cause. He uses the reprobate to show that he is God, to show to everybody, and especially to the elect. 
to show his justice. God always saves the elect. Even if he has to discipline them, he saves the elect. He, he, there's always a remnant. And he takes no pleasure in any of the evil that's happening. Absolutely not. He lives with indignation every day. That's what scripture tells us. Now, we're going to look at one tem- we're going to look at one objection, one more objection. And then I'll leave this for I'll leave the rest of these objections for a future episode where we're going to be doing just objections. But we're going to look at one objection, one more, and that's James 1:13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what is this about? Does it mean that God is... How do we reconcile this with all the things we've read, where God is allowing people to be incited, sending evil spirits, bringing evil upon people, blinding people. What was going on here? Well, first is the transcendent view versus the story view, participating view. God is not doing, he's not deliberately tempting you like the devil tempts you. Okay, he can allow you to be tempted. He can decree you to be tempted. And if you're elect, he's using that to bring you closer to him because he's going to help you overcome. But he's not the one doing that temptation. He's decreed it. He's not doing it. He can't tempt anybody because he himself can't be tempted. And this, the context of this whole passage, it, you know, it sounds, again, you got to read the context because on face value, some of these can be very easily taken out of context. What is the chapter called? Testing your faith. So it's important that when your faith is tested, that you remember that there's a purpose for it. If you believe that God is tempting you, then you have ceased to see a purpose in the temptation. You either turn God into your enemy or you you believe in a false God that he's okay with your temptation and he wants you to do whatever you're doing. Either way, you're not in alignment with, with rightly with God. That's what James is saying. God can ordain a temptation for you. And he also ordains when you fail and we succeed at it to bring you closer to him. But he's not the one tempting you. He's the one testing your faith. Acts 4, 26. The rulers were gathered around Jesus because they were predestined. The cross was predestined. Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit led him to the wilderness so that he could be tempted by the devil. Was Jesus ever tempted? No. It's impossible for him to be tempted, like we are tempted. He had a human nature, of course, but he's never going to consider a temptation. He's God. He has a divine nature, too. But the Spirit led him to be tempted. So how do we make sense of this? Well, God never forced anyone innocent to do evil. We're all wicked without God. God chose to save some of us. Jesus was the only innocent person in history, and evil was done to him. Okay, for for the elect, evil and temptation have a purpose to form us, to bring us closer to God, 
to show our weaknesses, to humble us, right? To reveal God's glory, his mercy, his his character, his steadfast love, his forgiveness. They have a purpose in this side of heaven. For the reprobate, their evil is used for God's purposes. They don't even they're not even aware of, you know, a relationship with God. They don't care. So God allows temptation and testing. That's pretty obvious. Satan with Job, with David, all the spirits he sent out, um, even in the Garden of Eden. You think God didn't know Satan was going to tempt Adam? No, he allowed him to do that to prove a point. Again, to set a precedent for giving the Holy Spirit eventually. And compare that to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God provides everything to us based on his infinite wisdom and what we can handle. No evil that comes into our life, no suffering that comes into our life, no success that comes into our life comes willy-nilly because we earned it or whatever else, free will, or because we can't deal with it. Everything that comes to our life, we can deal with from God's perspective. That's why he ordained it. And with temptation, he provides a way out, right? He's just in doing that. If you think God is the one luring you in temptation, you will not see the purpose for your problems. Again, this is the big problem that Job had, and a lot of people have with evil in general and predestination, is not seeing the greater purpose of evil and suffering in their life, and that God is just and has a plan. Nobody likes evil, but evil's going to be gone, and it's going to be meaningless the first day of paradise. So we have to trust God. God is testing us. You know, James is saying God is in our corner, and... He's not your enemy luring you to temptation. Okay, he's in your corner. So try to see the purpose behind it. It's kind of like how Elihu was rebuking Job in a, in a softer way. Right? Kind of the same same parallel I see it. So this is not really a challenge against God predestining evil. James 1.13, you know, God is tempting people is not having to do with the other things we talked about where God obviously blinds people, incites, you know, or sends Satan to incite, um, you know, determines things, hardens hearts. Those are for clear purposes in history. And he's not tempting you to sin like the devil is tempting you to sin. But he can ordain that you are challenged by the devil and that you make a mistake. Why? Because if you're elect, he's redeemed you already. And the up and down is part of the process. It's part of the process. So, a couple conclusions before we close this out. God is the author of morality. We can't apply morality to God. God's taken clear ownership of all that happens in the world, the good and the bad. Psalm 19.1 is one of my favorites. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, or firmament. When you look at a sky, do you see just beautiful clouds? No, you see storm clouds and beautiful clouds. God is in charge of it all, man. 
He's in charge of it all. Deuteronomy 32, 39. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. He takes ownership. God has authority over every evil spirit, every evil that happens, and he uses it for his plan. God created everything. Nothing is unnecessary in creation. Evil exists. Evil, therefore, is necessary. If we had free will and God responding to evil, then hardening hearts would be immoral. God wouldn't be sovereign. There would be conditional election where he's super biased and and he's choosing only the people that could have faith. God would be careless with the evil that is happening. And it's inconsistent with the Bible through and through. All the apostles counted suffering as a joy and evil as necessary. And all the Old Testament counted evil as coming from God and as part of his plan. James 1, 1 through 4, count James, servant of God, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is that whole verse that we were talking about with God just now, being, you know, God uh, doesn't tempt anybody. Well, wait a minute. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. See that there's purpose in it, that there's something that God is using. God is not your enemy. You know, they weren't just optimists. The apostles weren't just optimists trying to say, oh, God works things for the good. No. Optimism is a modern phenomenon. This whole optimism thing, it's a modern phenomenon. People in the Bible believed in predestination and in God being sovereign. The Bible is full of crazy stories to test your faith. Faith in God as a creator, faith in God's character, his word, his actions, his plan, his integrity. So the the question to really ask is not why did God create evil, but why was evil necessary in God's plan? You see, if you ask why did God create evil, you're starting to doubt God's character. There's no other way around it. You're going to wrestle with that. But if you ask why was evil necessary, you start to, you accept God's character as being perfect and you focus on the plan of salvation and trying to understand that. And that's going to lead you to more knowledge and wisdom than asking why is why did God create evil? It's not why God allows evil, but how is he going to use it for the best good possible? When you try to judge God's actions, a couple things are going to happen. You're either going to lose faith meaning atheism or deconstructing your faith. How many atheists have a problem with evil when in reality evil is, the existence of evil is one of the biggest proofs that God does exist because we can recognize evil through our morality and our conscience and only a creator of the conscience that proves that there's a creator of the conscience. That's what that proves. But the other thing it could lead to is compromising your theology. You might lose your faith or you might compromise your theology like open theism, Arminianism, universalism, everybody's saved, anything just to avoid having to wrestle with this problem of God predestining evil. You know, Arminianism is okay with God predestining things. It's just not okay with him predestining evil. (laughs) But here's the deal. Trusting God is trusting God even when he does things you don't agree with. Remember Joseph. God meant it for the good. They meant it for evil. He ordained the evil that happened to Joseph, 
but he meant it for the good. It wasn't evil to God in that sense. 1 Corinthians 2.9 But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That is the end that we're all moving towards. And in that sense, all this stuff that's happening is necessary to reach that end. Are you going to question God's judgment? Are you going to be the the pot telling the potter how his handle is made? If there's no evil, God would never have been able to show his love through his sacrifice. If there's no evil, nobody would know God's sovereignty, power, justice, his mercy. None of those things would be obvious. Evil is necessary for Christ, the hero, to be revealed. So why was evil necessary? Let's think about that. Well, and I'll, and I'll, we'll close with this, but have you ever thought about what it would take to bring a kingdom of people together willingly, that willingly love the king, that willingly obey the king, and it's just the perfect kingdom? Nothing like that has ever happened in history. And to do that requires a series of precedents and, and certain things that need to happen to bring it all together. And that's what we're living out right now. Part of that was God showing his love. Well, God can't die. He's self-existing. So he had to create time and space in a place where he could take on form and be killed and then rise again and prove that he's self-existing. In order to do that, in order to show that he's love, that he's life, he had to create the world and he had to create evil for the cross. All those things are predestined. Adam and Eve never had any context for their existence. It was the perfect controlled experiment to prove that without God overriding our will, our limited human will, that we would lose ourselves. They had the perfect surroundings, but they had no context. They had no Bible. They had no history. They had no trauma, nothing. They had nothing to reflect on. It was just a blank slate. And that was on purpose so that God could show the precedent of needing for him to be taking over. Without evil, there'd be no savior, there'd be no justice, no crucifixion, no appreciation for our existence, no reason to come to the kingdom and say, wow, what a journey it's been to get here. You know, there's so many shadows and types in in the yearning for fulfillment throughout the Old Testament where, you know, the evil, for example, the Genesis curse makes us yearn for the kingdom. How do you value something until you lose it? That's a good question. We were created in the image of God. And image also means, in the ancient world, image was an image, is a, a statue or whatever that a spirit inhabited. We are living temples. We're living sacrifices. The intention was always for God to inhabit us. But for, for that to happen, there needed to be a vast legal precedent for it. And so there's thousands of years of history and example upon example that shows God's character and, and process of judgment and thinking and what his values are and what he intends to do. We were created as vessels to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. We don't have a will of our own. We do God's will. Where is that line? Who knows? Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's a mystery. But that we were created is 
as living temples is no doubt. But for the Holy Spirit to reside in that temple, there had to be so many precedents to show why that's the end goal. There'd be no more illusion of free will. There'd be no more reason to rebel. There'd be nothing. But to do that, you have to go through all of this stuff kind of filtering itself out of human history. We were not made to be autonomous. We were made with a human nature, but we need the spirit in order to be ever to have life everlasting and to be truly free. The spirit of God truly frees you up. When you're born again, you are no longer a slave to sin. Until then, you're a slave to sin. So we need the spirit. But in order to do that, in order to be conformed to the image of Christ, and Christ had to come. He had to get crucified. There had to be evil to crucify him. There had to be reason. All this stuff was was part of the big plan. Think about it this way. If you cannot, if, if we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, who is Christ? Christ is forgiving, loving, trusting, faithful, humble. How can you learn any of those things? If, how can you learn forgiveness if you've never been betrayed? How, how can you learn to be faithful if you've never wrestled with doubt? How can you learn to be loving if you haven't been exposed to hate or indifference? See how that works? All those things need to exist in order for us to be perfected in this life. Now, of course, we're not going to be perfect, perfected, but I mean, we're being sanctified and then there's a there's a pretext, right? There's a context for it. And when the kingdom comes and we get our new bodies, we will be conformed to the image of Christ. It'll be different. But there had to be context and pretext for all that so that we understand. So that we're not just robots. God could have just from the very beginning not bothered with any of this and just made Adam and Eve kind of robots and whatever. But that's not what God wanted. God wanted us to know why, even though we aren't completely free beings, he still wanted us to know why we do what we do and why things are the way they are. He wanted to, he wanted us to know his character fully. Hence evil. So this has been quite a long talk. I'm going to rest my voice. Thank God I've been able to talk this much. My goodness. But I hope that this has given you ample evidence, ample resources, there was a lot of objections I wanted to cover, um, but I'm going to leave those for a future episode where I plan just for objections. So we can tune into that probably in a couple of weeks. Next week, I'm going to do the incarnation and how the incarnation of Jesus proves that we don't have free will. So anyway, that's that's the gist of it. But it's really interesting. I, I hope it's going to be a blessing for you. I hope this has been a blessing for you. Stay strong. The evil that happens in our lives, we may not always understand it. Sometimes we may not even always accept it. Sometimes we blame God. I've been there myself. But again, God's foresight is visible in hindsight. In hindsight, everything makes sense. And you see the the utter wisdom and profound genius that God has. So if you're wrestling with something that you feel is an injustice or an evil, and, and you say, well, how could God allow that to happen? That's between you and God. You have to remember don't ask, you got to right, ask the right questions. Don't ask, why did God bring this evil in my life? Why did God create this evil? But rather, what is the purpose this is, this is driving me to? Why was this necessary? 
And sometimes those are hard questions to answer, but there are answers, and that's between you and God and your prayer time. So I hope this has been a blessing. We'll see you next time. God bless. Have a great week.